In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the second series of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And how are you doing this week, Helen? Doing very well, Liz. It's you. It's getting a bit bit worrying because the, this guiding season's coming up fast upon us and I had my first half day tour this week so I'm kind of getting into the groove trying to fit back into the kind of the in version commas uniform jackets <laughs> I hope they fit I hope the, bu- about, I hope the buttons a are bit, a bit, the a bit popping <laughs> yeah well I wish we'd hurtle towards some spring weather I mean the clocks are going forward um, it's it's not very spring like but uh, we had a nice day yesterday so signs of things to come and looking back to the last episode um, we were talking about our pilgrim ways I'm still working away working away on uh, my tour for the beginning of May so I'll update you on how that goes but um, we're talking about how Queen Margaret established the first ferry crossing across the Fife across the Firth of Forth and of course if you were to go across it today as we do many times we wouldn't be taking a ferry. No that all stopped when they opened up the Forth Road Bridge but of course before that there was a crossing that crossed over which opened up in the late 19th century and that was the Forth Bridge which sometimes known as the Railway Bridge but officially it's always just the Forth Bridge. Yes you are a purist Helen you're always reminding me that it's the Forth Bridge but I would say that it was the Forth Bridge when there were no other bridges. You know, you have to distinguish it now. So I would always say the fourth real bridge. But as a purist, I know you are correct. It's the fourth bridge. Actually, I'm having a wee laugh to myself because my maiden name, my unmarried name was Helen Bathy. And then my uncle married and he married a Helen and she became Helen Bathy. But I was the first Helen Bathy. And then I married and became Helen Houston. And my stepson married and he married a Helen and she's Helen Houston. But I was Helen Houston first. So I'm like the fourth bridge. I've been there. <laughs> but you're not just Houston, you're Helen Houston. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, semantics, we're splitting hairs here. Um, the fourth bridge did celebrate its birthday this month. What was its birthday? Yes, its birthday. Well, it was opened in 1890. So that means it must be a, it's at 133. That's right. My and it was the, the, the 4th of March. And I mean, it's quite a feat. I mean, um, well, good old 
Gustav Eiffel called it the wonder of its generation, and he knew a thing or two about um, civil engineering and building bridges and, and towers, and the Eiffel towers, Tower. Yes, yes. It's quite a remarkable structure. It spans 8,296 feet across the Firth of Forth. And we must remind people that Firth means estuary. It's where the River Forth is opening out towards the North Sea. Yeah, before it was established, as we know, you had to take a ferry across not only the Firth of Forth, but also the Firth of Tay, another fjord or deep cut into the coastline that meant that the road has to go right inland if you want to, to travel north or west. Yes, and, and it was quite interesting because that ferry that we talked about that Queen Margaret established in the 11th century, that ferry became the busiest ferry crossing in Scotland by the 18th century. Yep, a lot of traffic going up and down to the north, linking um, Edinburgh in the south, up with Dunfermline now beyond. And in the old days, remember, Dunfermline was the capital, so linking Dunfermline, but then onwards through Fife and up to the highlands of Scotland, so a very important route. And the Collins Encyclopedia of Scotland says that the fourth bridge is the one immediately and internationally recognised Scottish landmark. Now, I had to think about this and I thought, no, I mean, think about it. Edinburgh Castle, surely people, but there's a lot of castles in the world. There's not a bridge like the the fourth bridge. No, it certainly is really very, very unique. And when you see, when you're flying into Edinburgh and very often the planes come over the Firth and you look down and it's just, it's there. You just know you're home when you see it. Absolutely. If you come in on a beautiful day, there's no sight that's better flying up the fourth and say, oh, I recognise that, I recognise that. I recognize. <laughs> and then now we have the three bridges, each one of its own century, each one of its own generation. We've got uh, the fourth rail bridge, we've got the road bridge of the 1960s, and then the new um, Queen's Ferry crossing that opened just a few years ago. So it really is quite an amazing sight. Yes, it's it's nice. So really, well, let's look at how the, how this wonderful, iconic bridge, which is now a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but that took till 2015 before it became the UNESCO World Heritage Site. But let's look and see how that was actually built. Yep. I mean, as you said, Helen, it was at the end of the 19th century. You know, it was um, it was a time of, of great engineering, great technological advances. And uh, they decided that the ferry was no longer meeting the demand. And there was various ideas. They thought at one time that they would actually build a tunnel across. But um, no, that wasn't it. And so it was decided that this was the great era of bridge building. And it came in the wake of the building of the Tay Bridge. Now, as we know, in Scotland, the building of the first Tay Bridge was not a great success. No, it, it, it was the idea was to cross these two big areas of water, the two firths, Firth of Forth and Firth of Tay. And Thomas Bouch was given the contract and he designed the bridges the one over the Tay, and the one over the Tay was built first. But very sadly, in 1879, it collapsed while a train was going across it. And that just really stopped everything in its, in its tracks, so to speak. And they had to go back to the drawing board. Thomas Bouch, poor soul, was, was blamed completely and utterly for the collapse. Personally, I think slightly unfairly, but um, he was blamed completely for the collapse. So new builders were brought in place, new designers were brought in. I'm with you there, Helen. I mean, Thomas Bouch was, we can't underestimate 
the status that he had as an engineer at that time. He was um, absolutely the best in the land. So many successful constructions behind him. And it was a man that went from the absolute heights to the absolute pits. In the July of that year, Queen Victoria travelled across the Tay Bridge and she knighted him. And she said that it was absolutely wonderful. But as you say, that disaster in uh, December, the last night in December, and so many people killed, including his own son-in-law. And he was one of the passengers that was on it. And of course, everybody turned against him. Even his assistant, who was wanting to make sure that his hands were clean, turned against him. And everybody blamed it a shoddy workmanship, badly designed, badly built, badly maintained. But in actual fact, Bouch was known for his ability to, to do a job for a good price. And so perhaps he was driven to making making cuts on materials that, that eventually led to the failure. And there's two beliefs. One belief is that the bridge failed. Bouch has always maintained that it was the train that went into the side of the bridge. But who knows? But as you say, there's still debate over that. Still debate. There's still debate over it. And of course, I suppose, like today, it's not only the designer, there are contractors involved and contractors have got to make money as well. So, you know, it's just one of those mysteries that sits up there wondering and wondering. Yeah, but there's no doubt about it. One thing's for sure that when it came to building the fourth bridge, they weren't taking any chances. So Thomas Bouch got put off the job. And the fact that the fourth bridge today is such an example of awesome engineering, the huge strength and bulk of it, that's down to the disaster that uh, befell the, the Tay Bridge. Yes, and I think that's something that I always make sure that we say that this great iconic structure, which really is, I suppose, when it was going up, must have looked quite ugly. Mm-hmm. We get if we've got used to it, it's absolutely beautiful now. But you, know, it just had to. The railways had come; people were travelling by train; they were crossing the water. They had to be sure; they had to be confident that the bridge would hold it. So it is just you know, show the strength, and that's what the designers and engineers did. Yep, so with Bouch out of the way, there are three men that stand out and you associate with the building of the fourth bridge. First of all, the consulting engineer, John Fowler, a man that was very well established in the whole of the UK. And then his designer, Benjamin Baker. And finally, the building contractor, the civil engineer, if you like, who was William Arrell. Yes, and William Arrell had actually been involved in the building of the the Tay Bridge as well. You know, he, he had won that contract and he won the contract for the fourth bridge, for the original fourth bridge that Bouch had. He wasn't, sorry, he wasn't involved in the Tay Bridge, but he won the contract for the original bridge that Bouch had designed, but he also won the contract for the Benjamin Baker, John Fowler design. Yep, these were three men that were absolutely at the forefront of Victorian engineering. John Fowler, he was at the forefront of the railway boom, and he designed a number of stations, including Victoria Station, in London, as well as bridges, including Grosvenor Bridge, which was the bridge that carried the first railway across the Thames down in London, Manchester Central Station, the roof at St Pancras Station. But probably he'll be best known because he was the pioneering engineer on various lines that became the London Underground. Yes, and that's such a network nowadays and still going strong, still tunnelling away under London. And Benjamin Baker, of course, he joined John Fowler's firm and he also became a partner there in 1875. But And he was involved in the underground as well. So they were working together you know, long and hard before the fourth bridge came along. 
And as you say, William Arrell was well known. He, but he was also, you know, if you think about the Victorian era, you know, all this about, you know, applauding the, the, um, the what do you call them, the virtues um, of the Victorian era. So he was the classic Victorian idea of the self-made man, right? He, he'd risen from entering a cotton mill at nine years of age. He became a blacksmith's apprentice at 14. And then he joined a Glasgow firm of builders and bridge makers. And um, he worked his way up until he eventually earned himself a knighthood from these humble beginnings. And he launched his own, he was able to launch his own business at, with his own life savings of £85. Yes, and, and he, he was a hard worker. This was a real Victorian you know, ethics of real hard work. And he, he worked, he was you know, working constantly, not just on one project, but on several projects, but keeping very much hands-on on all of his projects. Yeah, I think that um, if we were to consider him now, we'd think he didn't have the work-life balance quite right. He had so many <laughs> projects. He was, he was he did get the contract for the T-Bridge and he was juggling that with the fourth bridge and with work down in London. There was no rest for the wicked. He was moving up and down all over the country with all these projects that he was involved in. Yes, and, and you know, when they started designing it, when, you know, it was Baker who did the design, when he started the design, they went right back to, you know, sound engineering principles. None of this fancy modern stuff because they had to get the confidence back. So the big engineering principle was the cantilever. Yeah. And, and of course, that had old-fashioned sort of connotations, but they brought it right slap bang up into the, well, what was the 19th century in their work. Yeah, I mean, we'll put up a picture on social media about the experiment that he carried out where he basically had uh, one plank of wood anchored at the centre with two people sitting on it, balancing each other to demonstrate the principles of cantilever. So this was a new idea, this cantilever structure. But also remember that there'd been a huge step forward in the process for making steel. So, you know, the fabric that the bridge was being constructed of was so much stronger than that that was used for the Tay Bridge. Yes, I think the old the old iron bridges were... That, that was the end of their era, whereas steel was strong. And, and of course, Andrew Carnegie, for some of our American listeners, Andrew Carnegie was very much into steel. But this was the first steel bridge in, in Britain that was made. Yeah. But going back to cantilever, Liz, I think you know, I love the idea of thinking, what is a cantilever? How can it possibly support? Think of the diving boards. We all watch these wonderful dives at the Olympics or anything like that. And a diving board is basically a cantilever principle anchored on this edge on the pool side at one side and the diver walks out and it still supports his weight. Yeah. Fixed at one side and free at the other. The principles. I'm not an engineer, Helen. It's beyond. Oh, no, neither it's am I. Beyond neither me. am I. But well, I, that's why the diving board suits me fine. Yeah, and I the, can see it. And the wee <laughs> picture of him, of, of um, yes. Baker with his assistant, and they've got three, three, uh, two chairs, three men, two piles of bricks, and four broomsticks. I'll put that one up. That kind of explains it to me. But the yes. cantilever was the wonder of regeneration, and this was a new form of bridge building. But I think probably. Yeah. One of the things that contributed to the success of the fourth bridge was the sighting of it, where it is. Yes, and we we have to go back to Thomas Bouch. He selected the site. You, know, he saw the natural features on either side of the Firth, and he said, "You, know, we actually don't need to do too much sort of sloping of the bridge or building up because the natural promontory on one side 
is the same height as this promontory on the other side. We just need to put something between them. Yeah, and of course the two promontories were very high up to start with. So I mean what you when you're looking to build a bridge, there's traffic going under the bridge. So the big thing about this was that the bridge was sufficiently high that there was headroom beneath it for for ships, uh, merchant ships, naval ships to go up and down the forth and impeded by this new structure that was being put across it at the narrowest point and um, where the ferry yes. had crossed previously. That's right. And, and there was also sort of sufficient anchorage base at that part of the river for any barges or anything that was going to be required for the building of the bridge. And even better, working like a dream, right in the middle of it, you had Inchgarvey Island. And when they looked at, you know, the geological composition, it was made of whinstone, which is one of the hardest stones. It was an ideal foundation, perfect for a, a like a, a gigantic stepping stone they could put the middle span of the bridge on this island and save and and have the strength of this so fantastic you couldn't imagine that um, you could have any better site for it no but then but the big thing that they had to do on this site was to build these cassians or caissons i'm not never sure how to pronounce that i pronounce i pronounce it wrong as well as i'm tend i always tend to say cassian but it's caisson it's Kason, yes, it's C-A-I-S-S-O-N. Tell us about them. What were they? Well, these were like great big cylinders, sort of iron, wrought iron cylinders, which were about four 400 tons in weight and 70 feet in diameter. That is huge. And these were floated out, filled with concrete and sunk down to the bottom of the, of the firth. But they left a bit underneath, they had kind of like a a hollow cylinder behind, underneath the concrete, and that sort of went onto the seabed. But then men had to go in under the concrete, into that part of the caisson, and dig out the mud, the depth, till they got down to the bedrock. It was what they called hideous labours. Yeah, if you think about it, this was going to be the foot that was supporting the bridge, several of these caissons. And so when they put it down to the depth, first of all, they had to pump out the seawater that it filled with. And to keep it out, they had to replace it with compressed air. So when the men went down into this space, they're working at depth. Um, Hideous labours, right enough. But of course, they became famous for caisson sickness, which was one of the major killers of the people who were working on the bridge. And basically, this is just acute decompression sickness, the bends that divers get, because they were going down to such a depth that the nitrogen that was dissolved in the blood under pressure, as they came up to the surface, it got released as gas bubbles into their blood vessels. And so their blood literally fizzed and um, they got sick with it, fatigue main thing, joint and muscle pain, which is what the bends came from. But worse than that, the staggers, because their their um, their movement was impaired, clouded thinking. And the worst of all was the chokes, because the, the blood was fizzing and their lungs were, were impacted by this. So paralysis, terrible symptoms associated with caisson sickness while working on the bridge. Yes. And although the... the, the... The engineers, they, 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 did, they did try to look after the safety, but they were into completely new territory. So they really, a bit like COVID, they, they weren't quite sure what the correct treatment would be. So these, these men, they deserve our sort of recognition. Yeah, so when we think of 
the, the men that built the bridge, the briggers, we tend to think of the people working above the surface, you know, what we see. But there was so much work went into the preparations, the laying of the foundations before they could ever begin to start on building a bridge over it. But just imagine it, Helen, when they do begin to start on the bridge. You know, we know Queen's Ferry, either side of the Firth of Forth, North Queen's Ferry and South Queen's Ferry they would have been just tiny little villages, you know, no more than just a street with maybe an inn, a shop on it. But as soon as this work started in 1883, everybody in the world descended on this place. The scale of the operation, imagine the noise, imagine all these people arriving to work on the bridge. The workforce, sometimes it was over 4,000 people. And they all had to be accommodated. Um, You know, it was was unbelievable. As you say, the reason for... South Queen's Ferry's existence was for the ferry, just people going to the ferry and coming back from the ferry. It wasn't anything other than that. But the Hawes Inn did exist. The pub, the the staging post, it was there and it really came into its own. So imagine these men, the Briggers, descending on the Hawes Inn pub, the Hawes Inn eh? It was an inn. It was a coaching inn. inn. Yeah, it was said, I'm sure I've read somewhere, that it had the longest bar in Europe because, of course, between shifts, the men would descend and it um, it actually had a a ward in the garden... a ward, yeah. a hospital ward in the garden next door because um, so many people were injured on the bridge and so um, it didn't it didn't bode well if they were taking a shift, if they were going into the Hawes Inn before they went off on a shift. It flourishes too well for being in the middle of our works. That was one of the quotes. Yes, that's right. And, and of course, we benefit now because it's still a very nice, a nice inn to go into. Seven years of the work was done below the surface of the water. The first seven years was building these caissons before they could even start putting something on top of them. Yep. But I was just thinking that one of the requirements that they had when they were hiring people to work on the bridge, first of all, they had to be in good health and free from pulmonary or gastric weakness. That was obviously because of the demands of working inside the caissons. But another one was that they had to be abstemious or at any rate, moderation in taking strong spiritous liquors. That's because (laughs) they didn't want them in the hawes in too often. Yeah. So it's a bit like you when you're filling in these medical forms nowadays, they sort of say, do you drink alcohol? How many units of alcohol do you drink? And you think, I've no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So think of a number and divide it by two. (laughs) It depends on the day or the or the week. Yeah. And as you say, the 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 um the what do you call them, the people who were in charge, the managers or the the construction company, I suppose. Um, They did take great care over their workers. They tried to um, look after them. They did give them woolen jackets because of this biting wind. They had big, thick woolen jackets, overalls, waterproof shoes. They had shelters and heated dining rooms on site. And they also, which was quite a move forward for the time, they had a sickness and accident fund and they did need it. Yes, and both the employers and employees contributed into that because there was an awful lot. And when you look at pictures, because photography had come into its own uh, when they were building the bridge, and there are some wonderful pictures of the men sitting away up there on the half-built construction with just, as you say, these woolen jackets and their bunnets, <laughs> their cloth caps, their woolly bunnets to keep their heads warm. I wonder how they kept them on in all those gale force winds up there. Well, they didn't really because apparently there were rescue boats 
in the waters underneath the bridge when it was being built. And one of the things that this, these rescue boats picked out of the water, not just the odd person, but 8,000 bunnets <laughs> that had blown off the heads of the workers. You think they'd learn, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. That's two per person average. Right, but A wee bit elastic under the chin would have worked. <laughs> yeah, so... But in spite of all these efforts, the official record is that 57 lives were lost. But, you know, recently historians and people interested in um, local history have established that there were far more than that. In fact, yes. one of the logbooks um, which was kept shows that the record of accidents and sickness had 26,000 entries. So, you know, when you look at the memorials, I think there were a lot more than the official 57 lives lost. Yes, and the and the thing is that it's a bit it's a bit awful to think about. But when they were building these piers, you know, these big granite piers, once they put the foundations in of the caissons, and they were building up these hugely high granite piers, they were hollow, or with rubble. And if somebody fell in, in to the pier rather than out into the water, nobody would know. So it's a bit yeah. The numbers I think are. Not quite correct, although there is a group in South Queensferry now who have been put, doing a lot of research into it. They're, they they call themselves the Briggers because they're looking into the, the Briggers and they've written a wee book as well, which is yeah, good. Just imagine, Helen, after all the foundations have been sunk and you begin to see the visible part, you can just imagine all the public gathering around coming from miles around to watch this, like a giant coming out of the ground, you know, the four what were called skewbacks, which were colossal steel tubes coming out of the ground and then spreading Routing steel limbs and gradually taking shape. You know, it was, and always because it was cantilever, always it had to be kept in perfect balance. Yeah, I, I just, you know, you think this is engineering before computers. I just think the mathematics that had to be done to make all this work is fantastic. Paper and pencil still works. Yep, and with good old Victorian work ethos, the cantilever, cantilevers reached their full height in 1887, which was Queen Victoria's Jubilee year. So, we know how to do things, Liz, yeah, don't we? You know, and also, celebrate the royals. <laughs> and this was the height of the Victorian era, so they had money to throw at it. So the actual bridge was completed in December 1889, and the following month they started doing load testing on it. Yes, it was quite quite fascinating that the way they did it was actually to put out two trains, each comprising of three locomotives and 50 wagons loaded with coal, which was the natural resource of the area. And they stopped frequently for measurements to be taken just to see what was happening on the bridge. And then, but the next thing was when the first complete crossing took place, Liz, in the February, who was driving the train? Tell us, Helen. Candida Louise Hay, the Marchioness of Tweedale, she was the, the woman who drove the first train over in January 1890. A woman. It was a woman. She happened to be married to one of the Hygians, um, but it was a woman and they did compliment her driving. Um, so, you know, she has that honour, which is, is not very well known. I didn't know that until nope. I started researching this. So it was a woman who drove the first train. Yes. And, who was and I think it shows, shows a lot for the men, too, that they had confidence in both the bridge, the train and the driver. Either that or it says a lot for her marriage that she told him, I'm doing it. <laughs> oh, that's true, yes. <laughs> but who was on that train? Well, there was... Well, 
on that particular train, there was a lot of people. But later on, the, there was another train where when it was the Prince of Wales who was going to perform the opening ceremony who was on the train. That's right. They didn't let him loose with the woman. They waited till oh, the no, March no, no, of no. that year. She was in the January. He was in the March. That's right. Yes. So, and... You know, he he the, all the earlier trials had been completed, so you know he he knew or they knew it was safe for him to go across. Yeah, they weren't taking any chances. All the load testing that they'd done, they had tested with twice um, the anticipated weight, so they were making sure that um, there wasn't going to be any problem with him going across it. So he went across. And Liz, he was quite a portly gentleman, wasn't he? So they had to make, make sure that the weight was fine. <laughs> that was true. And he had quite a big party with him on that day. So they crossed from south to north. They inspected the bridge. They got off at North Queen's Ferry. They went on to a steam launch called the Dolphin. And they looked at the bridge from below, all round about it. They took a circuit round in Shigarvi Island. But it was blowing an absolute it was a terrible day. There was a gale force wind, so he wasn't hanging around. So they did, they did. When they got back on the train, they did stop, and he was he drove in the last rivet, the specially inscribed rivet, gilded rivet, with a silver key made by Hamilton and Inches, which still exists in George Street today, the the jeweller's shop. Yeah, but he wasn't hanging around. He got off on the bridge and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I now declare the fourth bridge open and got back on and went back on <laughs> went, went for lunch. <laughs> went for lunch. Had another wee whiskey and went for lunch. And then, of course, part of the, the lunch speeches in the quiet of the, the model room at the bridge works was that the honours, Queen Victoria had bestowed honours on both Benjamin Baker, John Fowler and William Arrell. Yeah. Queen Victoria was, she was very amused. She was very good at uh, bestowing honours when she was happy. Of course, when you think about the painting of the bridge, one of the sayings that's associated with the painting of the bridge is that if a job's never ending, you never get it completely finished, it's said to be like painting the fourth rail bridge. Yes, because that was that was a job. People were employed their whole lives as fourth bridge painters. They were just up there painting away all the time. But there's a lot more to the paint than um, you know, just painting the bridge. It was a very special paint and a Leith company, Craig and Rose, got the contract to supply the paint in the first instance. I think they're and still going strong today. Yeah, they, that continued for, well, 100 years until the refurbishment. And then I think, they've, I think they got the, the job for refurbishing. I'm not sure. They didn't get the job, but I think you can still buy, I may be wrong, but I think you can still buy Craig and Rose paints today. Oh, you can. Oh, yes. Yeah. They they, ha they have a shop in the high street at Stockbridge. Do they? Oh. Uh, you could walk in off the high street and get your tin of paint. I always think that says something about the area of Stockbridge, that people <laughs> will go high street shopping for, for paint rather than go to the do-it-yourself store. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, they can still ask for fourth bridge red because this red oxide paint that was used um, was characteristic and it got its own name, fourth bridge red. Yes, yeah, very, very distinctive. But then, Liz, it, it peeled a lot. This is why it was a never-ending job, always painting and always painting and always painting. Yeah, but I think people get the idea that they worked from one end to the other and then went back to the beginning again. They never did that. Um, they were working constantly on it, but they were patching up these areas that were flaking. And they reckon that bit by bit, the whole bridge got painted once every five years. So it was yes. a continual job, but it wasn't starting at the beginning again. It's a bit like the house, isn't it? Yes. You sort of, you know, you don't, you don't do... 
the whole house. You just do it as and when it's needed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Or not. Or not. <laughs> but but then but then they decided it really had bridge had got to a state in the late nineteen hundreds, the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, where it was really just not being looked after and money came into it. So what they did was they decided they'll do a complete refurbishment of the bridge, which meant stripping off hundreds of years of paint, examining each one of the six or seven million rivets holding it together, and then repainting it. It was a big job. Yeah, think of all that debris. They used great big, huge vacuum cleaners to suck up all this debris of this paint that had been virtually impenetrable. And um, they then used modern materials, many of them previously used in the North Sea oil industry because it had to stand up to all this wind and sea spray salt. So it had to be special. It was an anti-corrosion primer and then a special epoxy glass flake paint, which they applied. So it has a huge resistance and, and, and lasts for much longer than the original paint. Yes, they're hoping to get about 25 years out of the, the, the painting they did. The first time the whole bridge had been painted as one was when they finished that refurbishing in sort of 2011. Yeah. And it was, it, and the bridge today still looks super, Liz. It really looks lovely. It does. And I think you've got personal associations with the bridge, Helen. Yes, um, my grandfather, whom I never met, he died in the 1930s, but he worked on the bridge. My mother was always very proud of the fact, and my father always kind of sort of poo-pooed it a little bit. But anyway, my mother was proud of the fact that her father had worked on the bridge. And by right, he would have been 14 at the time they were recruiting young boys to act as rivet boys. So I think he possibly started life as a rivet boy. And the rivet boy was the boy who heated up the rivets to the, the required heat and then threw the rivet to the two riveters who would then put them in place, hammer them home, and um, he would have to keep up with this. So he would start there. And in those days, he lived in Fife and they would travel by train to North Queen's Ferry and then across on a boat to South Queen's Ferry, where they did the training in a yard just behind the Hawes Inn, up above on the hill behind the Hawes Inn. And my mother used to say, and we kind of laughed when she said it, oh yes, the fourth bridge was built twice. It was built in the yard to check everything fitted. And then it was dismantled again, you know, in bits, dismantled again and taken to the, to the Firth. And actually, that's exactly what did happen. So I would imagine that my grandfather was involved in the, you know, when he was training, seeing these bits of bridge being built and then dismantled. So it was quite 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 a an interesting thing and I still have an original rivet from the fourth bridge that was taken out um when they were refurbishing it in the early 2000s. So I've got It that wasn't that gilded rid, rivet that uh, Prince Edward put in, was it? <laughs> no, it's it's got a kind of a a, a golden tinge oh, to it. But I think yes, it's I yes. think it's rust. I think it's rust. Right. I well, if you have a knock on the door, you'll know that yes. they found out where that rivet went missing too. <laughs> so every time I go on the bridge, I think of I think of my grandfather as a as a young boy, as a a rivet boy, part of a rivet gang climbing after he does his training, climbing up all the ladders and along the planks up onto the bridge going higher and higher 
And I think, my goodness, that must have been a scary job. Yeah, well, that's what you think of when you cross the bridge. But the bridge has been so much associated with social culture over the years. When I go over it, I always think of Alfred Hitchcock's 39 Steps because it featured prominently in the the book by John Buchan when it was made into a film. And I always think of the man hanging out of the the coach going over the, the, the bridge. But, I mean, much more recently, it was lit up in 2005 for comic relief um, in 1998 we had the countdown clock counting down to the millennium so it was all lit up for that uh, so lots of, of appearances in modern culture yes and and of course one of the, the big things the, the, the things that we used to do when we crossed the, the bridge on the train before your time Liz the old steam train with the with the bridge with the windows that you could put up or down I with do the leather strap that. I do remember that yes. do you remember well it was you had to throw pennies out That's of right. the train for luck I think this possibly might have been after you know people thinking of the Tay Bridge disaster thinking oh we're on the bridge we'll throw a penny out for luck to hope this bridge stands and it has stood you've just reminded me of that I did do that and you had to be very careful that you didn't get a smut of soot in your eye from the steam train with the wind blowing Um, so yeah I do remember that but also just up from the bridge we've got the big um, what was the naval base at Resyth and so when sailors were returning back to their base at Resyth they they wouldn't ask what the time was as they passed under the bridge they'd ask how long it it was was they asked when they would pass under the bridge. That was the way in which they worked the timings of how long it was going to take them to get home. And that continued right up until the 1990s. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. But of course, when it was built, the bridge was the longest bridge, single you know, cantilever, single cantilever bridge span in the world until bridge, until there's somewhere that you visited recently. Yeah, 1917. So, you know, from it, it uh, opening in 1903, we've got 1917, the Quebec Bridge was completed and it, it overtook it as the the longest cantilever bridge in the world. Now, I travelled across that and it was before we started on this and I have to say that I didn't even notice it. <laughs> I came across into Quebec City from Levy um, in Quebec province and you cross over the St. Lawrence River and um, I have to say that it, it obviously wasn't impressive enough that I thought, oh, this is even longer than the, the fourth bridge. So, And it had all its challenges as well. Again, there was two failures in the building of it where the bridge collapsed. Cost of lives, 88 lives lost. But in this case, the bridge not only is a rail bridge, but they have brought it all together on this bridge. So they've got the rail, the road, three highways, and also a pedestrian walkway going across this one massive bridge in Quebec. God. Well, that, and it's interesting you didn't notice. I think you can always notice the fourth bridge going across because it is such a massive structure. You certainly would. It's an icon of its era and it well deserves its world heritage status. And I'm no doubt it'll be not too long before we're going over it again. Yeah, well, that's right. And now, I suppose, Liz, word of the week. Have you any words that you were thinking about for the the bridge? Well, I had to think, you know, I was thinking about bridge and we've got briggers. And, and, but then I thought, well, you think of all this hard work, you know, this painting, this building and all of this. And so when something is a very, very hard task, we say in Scotland, it's a seerfecht. It's sore work. So seerfecht, S-A-I-R. F-A-C-H-T, F-E-C-H-T, Seerfecht. A Seerfecht. And we still use that word quite a lot, it's a Seerfecht. 
But I was thinking, Liz, actually two. One, because um, the word in Scotland that we use for a bridge is a brig, hence the name the Briggers for the builders. So a brig for a bridge, a bridge. But then I reminded myself when we were chatting away there, the bunnet. Mm. Yeah. The headgear that they wore, the bunnet. And I noticed that a number of people coming, visiting Scotland, the men want to go into the shops to get a bunnet. You know, that flat cap that yeah. they wear. Harris so Street. And bunnet. They look, oh, Harris, yeah. has to be Harris Street. Has to be yes. Harris Street, yes. They look very dapper when they come out. But hopefully they're not going to go into any gale force winds and lose it because there's no safety <laughs> boat down below. <laughs> that's right. Well, Liz, that's, that's, that's another episode. So look forward to seeing you next week, Helen. See you next time, Liz. Bye for now. Bye for now. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>